Thanks for tuning in, guys. You're listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg Driver. I'm joined by Rahul Johnny and Leon Everett. Let's go. Comicals episode 94. Um, as usual, I'm Greg. And if you don't know that by now, if you've been listening to the podcast, then <laughs> God help you. Uh, I'm joined by Ray and Leon. Hey, as usual, I'm Rahul. Howdy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so here we are with our 94th episode, creeping ever closer to episode 100. Although I don't think there's going to be any big changes to the status quo or crossover events or <laughs> anything anything huge like that we're not going to go back to number one either we're just going to carry on keep playing. aren't we on road to 100 right now <laughs> yeah. special run. Pretty, pretty much yeah pretty much this is the ace comicals road to 100 yeah something something big's gonna happen like episode 99 um I'm going to die and get replaced. And <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, this is your yeah. marketing, pretending like nothing's going to happen yeah. before the cataclysm. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to, like, you're not going to like the new Greg because the new Greg will be, like, some space alien or something instead. And he will take up the mantle of Greg, but he won't be the same. And then the it's old cool. Greg will come back from the dead. And, yeah, we're going to be dealing with some of that later anyway when I start talking about the Immortal Hulk. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> By the time we get to episode 152, we can just retcon it all back to her. Exactly, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I never died. Yeah. <laughs> so how has everybody been in the intervening two weeks? Been good. Same same old, same lockdown self, I suppose. Um, uh, I did get to go home and see some family, uh, did some safe distancing, like meet and greets and stuff. Uh Celebrating Rakshabandhan, which was nice, which is a Hindu ceremony where um, <laughs> basically a sister gives the brother a bit of old rope and in return she gets money for old rope. That's literally it. Um, but it's a nice it's a, it's a nice celebration. I, I, I'm glad that I didn't get to miss that with my sister this year. Uh, and I think that was it. Um, the same old playing games, watching films, reading comics. How about you guys? Yeah, that. Games, films, comics. Leon, you go first though. What have you been up to? These weeks just uh, contract and expand at such a scary pace that I can never tell where one bit ends and the next bit begins. But in line with you guys, yeah, games, comics, books, films, you know, the, <laughs> what, the, what? the regular stuff. Um, what else is there to do in this lockdown dystopia? I mean, I mean <laughs> forget lockdown. What What... What uh, else is there to do anyway? Like you go out, out to and help see out. people? Oh yeah, yeah. Fifty <laughs> percent voucher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, I've along the lines of what I was doing last time, I've been revisiting a lot of like older movies, especially a lot of uh, like twenty ten movies and stuff. So I've spent a lot of time doing that. I'll tell you what I did yesterday. I was um, I was on my exercise bike and I was checking my email at the same time because like, I can't do anything without multitasking. 
So I was checking my email, and as I was approaching, like, my 30th minute on the bicycle, a stationary bike, by the way, not outdoors, I was in my flat doing a stationary bicycle, and um, I got an email from Just Eat saying, we've got free delivery on um, McDonald's breakfast, do you want one? I was like, fuck off. The timing was the worst. Like, you can't, you can't tell a man when he's trying to exercise in the morning, like, getting back in the habit, if he can get an 89p hash brown at, for, for, like no cost to anybody else like i could have done that i could have i could have bought 89 pence worth of one single like flash fried hash brown but i resisted um yeah you're putting in the work you're on the bike what more yeah, yeah man <laughs> like you staying get, in to not so, help out so wait you were you were cycling like cycling to nowhere in a way yeah, yeah cycling yeah. to nowhere and then you were going to get somebody to cycle to you for 89 pence worth of chopped and fried potato that's, that's what they <laughs> that's what they wanted me to do and that's what i chose not to do <laughs> so yeah um i i i've been doing like cycling and all sorts of other stuff oh. like i because i live near some quite rurally type places that i can bike without being bothered by other people oh you'd be doing actual biking not peloton yeah. like rahul no, I've got a I've got a mountain bike, so Excuse me, I don't have Peloton, I just have my bicycle and um Netflix. <laughs> and I just put put on a video of something green and <laughs> just watch that. What's that like... what's that episode of Black Mirror? Where uh, that guy 50, has... uh, fifty million uh, merits. credits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um so I mean other than that, I've been like trawling my way through because what's happened, this whole like covid thing has put comics like like for me at least it, it's it's kind of like knocked comics's jaw out of place so there's a lot of things that i've kind of like missed the pulse on that i'm gonna wait and go back to it when it's collected and things like that and i'm a little bit like annoyed that <laughs> it's all like passed me by but then again i also understand why it's passed me by so it's fine but i'm like kind of like chomping at the bit to get into these stories to find out what's happening and to catch up with what's going on in the world of comic like comics wise like what's going on in the dc universe what's going on in the marvel universe there's two big crossovers going at the minute one on each side and i'm kind of like missed the starting mark for both so i'm waiting not a blessing well it's a blessing. Than a curse. <laughs> it's probably a blessing for you but for me i'm like i i enjoy that sort of thing as you well know so <laughs> that's me but yeah um so like i've been wanting to get into those but what i've been doing instead is going back and revisiting things that i've passed me by previously and also going back and revisiting some old old comics so i've been checking out some um i say old old i mean the 90s but i guess that is old old now isn't it a lot of it's definitely <laughs> that's ancient history if you're a zoomer oh <laughs> uh, yeah man i've been uh, reading some batman elseworlds stories so i've got three volumes on my shelf of batman elseworlds stories and volume one is by far the biggest and i'm like 300 plus pages into that right now and uh, there's all sorts of like basically the whole the whole idea of elseworlds is um kind of like alternate universe batmans but they're not really alternate universes at this point as in they don't exist in like you've got the the dc new 52 these aren't universes within the dc uh not the dc the dc new 52 sorry you've got the dc 
uh, multiverse and there's 52 different universes or whatever. And then there's like the dark multiverse as well. And these aren't supposedly within that, as far as I can tell. This is like me trying to piece this together. Um, these are just like alternative tellings of Batman stories. So like, what if Batman was a 1920s socialite? What if Batman was... <laughs> Uh, alive during the times of the American Civil War and things like that. Mm. Um, and this, like, volume one, uh, the things I've read so far. So we've had Batman, like a Western type story where Batman's like a Union general doing a secret mission for Abe Lincoln during the Civil War. Um, he puts together a battalion of freed slaves and he has a native ally called Redbird, who is looking for vengeance for his murdered mother. It's all very Lone Ranger. Um, there's Robin 3000, which is set in the far future. And it's, it's like, I'm not going to lie, all of this is pretty schlocky. But uh, <laughs> there's, there's Robin 3000, where it's set in the future. And um, it's like the, the Earth's been taken over by an alien race um, who blame the Wayne family for something that they basically they set it up that the Wayne family started a virus that killed a lot of people and they were able to cure it but really it was them all along just kind of infiltrating and colonizing earth um and Robin starts the resistance and it's like two issues long but it goes nowhere because Robin defeats this general and then that's it it just kind of cuts off at the end of issue two and we don't get what happens after that. We just, because obviously that's not the end of it because the resistance isn't like, it's not over. They've just beat one guy. So now what? But um, yeah, it's, it's all pretty schlucky, but it's like, it's enjoyable because of that in the same way that you would enjoy like a really bad Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. <laughs> Like the same way you'd enjoy those like schlocky nineties action films, you can enjoy these. Um there's one that was like a Howard Chaikin one. Uh, Howard Chaikin wrote it, which is like Bruce Wayne is a rich turn of the century socialite and he's Batman and he's working alongside Harry Houdini to solve a case of missing kids that have been kidnapped across Gotham and there's this Joker esque character called Jack Schadenfraud. Um <laughs> I mean, not not to get too into the weeds of, like, how we enjoy yeah. stuff. Or maybe I do want to get into that. But, like, you mentioned JCVD, and, like, there's there's a part of these these old action, like, schlocky action flicks that are more enjoyable when you watch them with friends or, like, slightly drunk or whatever in a group setting. And yeah. I find you can't really, <clears throat> or at least I can't really do that with comics. Like, well, do you, no. Do, do you find the same thing? Like, I think maybe that's the reason yeah. I don't in enjoy the schlocky stuff as much as you do. Uh, yeah, I don't you get to share it with you, really. Yeah, you, you can't do that with comics, but like because obviously it's quite it's quite a comics is like a, a thing where it's like reading. You can't really enjoy comics as a group. You can't put a comic on a projector and go page by page. I mean, wouldn't it be great but, if you kind of could though? Like, if yeah, I could, mean, if you could, right. that'd be cool. But like, yeah. it, I can't. It would be very strange, wouldn't it? Just sitting there, just mm. everyone. And then, like, you go through to the next page and everyone's like, hold on, turn it back a page. Not... <laughs> no, this is where everybody has yeah. a, uh, gets to have a voice and it's like a table read mm. and you go through it that way. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, that would be cool. But I don't know. Like, I, I don't think 
you could end uh, yeah so i mean like i enjoy like these bad action films because i enjoy just sitting and watching them because i i see the absurdity in them so mm. i can enjoy the absurdity alone without like having to sit in a room with other people or, or like and and enjoy it as a group with people and laugh at it as a group so i can i can enjoy these comics because i can just see the sheer absurdity in it and also i just like batman comics anyway and i like old comics so this is just something that's well you we call these old but they're to me they're not but to a lot of other people they are um but yeah they just um i don't know i can just get into that that head headspace when i'm reading it and it just it's kind of cool and kind of fun and it's anyway I'm, I'm working my way through it there's something coming up that looks like a batman frankenstein story the first story in the book was this hyper religious future where like the Puritans, there was no, from what I can gather, there was no separation of church and state and America is still ruled from the UK maybe. And they're all like hyper religious and the police are like the inquisition and it's all very strange. And Batman's fighting the establishment as it were in that one. Yeah. <laughs> I am, but... I am not sold on this series. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Don't be, honestly. Okay, like, <laughs> I will, when I finish reading the whole thing, I will pick out ones that are actually good and I will recommend them. But, like, at the moment, I'm, I don't know, I'm just enjoying reading it just for the fun of reading it and enjoying the mm. absurdity of it and everything else and just having these comics. I don't know. But, yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing. So, Batman Elseworlds, on top of that, uh, I've been playing Doom Eternal. Yeah, which is like metal as fuck. You bought me it for my birthday, Ray. You're very so welcome. This is this is your fault. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you gave me two options, and I gave you the most metal of the two options. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, no, look, it's, it looks really good. Oh, like, it I've been is. To play it. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's like there's there's some like deep story stuff there, and there's like mm. all these like collectibles where you can read. Usually, I'm one for stopping and reading. Like if I pick mm. up a stone tablet in a game with some information on it, I'll stop and read it because that's, I don't know, usually I, I'm, I'm like almost like... Um, we talked about this before, you're compelled yeah. to stop. And compelled actually, to do it, yeah. Because yeah. like the, the codex for Doom 2016 was surprisingly dense. I, well, I don't yeah. think, I, I never read through the entirety of it, the, but I didn't realise just how much lore there was to Doom. Yeah, with, with Doom and Doom 2016, I'm not compelled to stop and read. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah, because I'm I'm having too much fun ripping and tearing, <laughs> so it's like I could stop and read, or I could just like dive headfirst into a pile of demons and just get covered in gore. And I usually choose the latter. And then I've read a few bits of it, but I'm by the end of it, I probably will have read the whole thing. But it, it's like the first game. It's kind of freeing because I'm not compelled to stop and read because I'm having so much fun with the OTT metalness of it. Yeah, I think we, yeah. we talked about... I forget which comic we talked about this in the context of, but there was something which had, like, like the Watchmen style between chapters. It had, like, documents you could read or, like, like lore dumps or whatever. And I, I was asking you guys if you ever just skip them and save them to, like, download dump at the end of, the, like, the, the quote-unquote comic-y portion. And I'm like that with all of my games. Like, I can't stop and read the codex and whatever. And then I never have the compulsion to go back and yeah. read them at the end of the game anyway. So I kind of wish sometimes these things were, yeah. like, collated in book form. I remember 
um, Skyrim had that. Like you could download all of the all of the books that you can find in Skyrim. You could download as a PDF and go through mm. them as a big thing. And you realize that when they're not breaking up like the really dull action of Skyrim. Sorry, my opinions on Skyrim. I don't like Skyrim. But like you realize that the stories are really shit and not that interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming the Doom ones are actually pretty good. What do you mean you haven't bought Skyrim for every game system you own? I will not. I will never be buying Skyrim again. I regret I've got it, it the first time. I've I don't want to get Xbox. into my. <laughs> I've got it on Xbox 360, and I've got it on PC, and that's enough for me. Yeah, like, that's enough for me. I don't know why it needed a Nintendo Switch release. I really don't. But there we go. <laughs> to prove that they could. Just <laughs> Skyrim on the Game Boy Micro, but um, it's like, yeah. So usually I'm a lore dump guy. With these comics that you're talking about, things like Decorum and uh, mm. the new X-Men, the current X-Men run, yeah. um, I am like compelled to stop and read the pages in between. And it usually I'm be... compelled to do that with games, but like mm. for some reason uh, with Doom, I, I, it's freeing because I don't, I don't feel like I have to do that. Yeah, what, have you guys been playing um, Fall Guys then as well? Because that's one that I've yeah. picked up on PSN and stupidly picked up on Steam as well because a different group of friends are playing it on Steam and I didn't really want to buy it twice, but, you know, whatever. It's it's ridiculously fun and, like, really... Like, a really sincere amount of fun as well. Like, it's not... Yeah. Prete- it's not pretentious in the way, like, it's not pretending to be anything bigger or, like... I don't know, more... It's not pretending to be something it isn't. And it's just outright fun, and I've been having a blast with it. I think that's been my big... Apart from my ongoing Bloodborne that I've been playing with, you know, various friends, I think yeah. Fall Guys is the latest thing that I've been really into. Yeah, it's um, it's like Virtual Takeshi's Castle, isn't it? Basically, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what drew me to it, and that's why I got so into it. The only, like... I've been playing it, I've been playing it a little bit. I've not been playing it loads and loads... Mm, um same. i've had a few games on it because it, it's it's just great silly fun what i wish i could do is have local multiplayer on it and have like four guys or six guys on it and play drinking games with it and things who are you being local <coughs> with these days <laughs> that you can well, play local multiplayer yeah <laughs> don't take the cats to play <laughs> <laughs> myself i can play drinking games against myself <laughs> Yeah, you, you just reminded me we're in lockdown Britain. But <laughs> Sorry, Greg. For a second, I, was, I, I had that nice image of sitting sitting on a couch next to somebody and playing Smash Bros or something or, or Mario Party in the same room as someone, you know. Not in my house, Greg. You're not allowed to have those kind of fantasies. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for bringing me back down to reality, Ray. No, but yeah, so so Fall Guys is, is great, yeah. I do enjoy it, but I, I, I feel like... Battle Royale games are really solitary sometimes. They isolate you because you can't... I mean, although you can bring a party of people online with four guys and, four guys, and you can have, like, four guys in a four guys party, <laughs> you can't, like... I don't know. It's you, can't really co- inter- you, you don't really interact with each other much apart from the, the yeah. team set pieces like the football one or like the collect yeah. all the eggs, collect, collect the eggathon or whatever. But yeah. sometimes, it, like, it is a fun one to be in a group chat with, I think, because, like, yeah. you yeah. could what I like about it is there's like a variant of friendly fire for the Fall Guys game. So like there's um, there's a map where you have to grab tails off of other people. And I discovered that you can grab tails off your own teammates. So like the, you know, uh, game theory be damned. I was just trying to chase my own teammates and my own co-op partners and grab their tails. God. Yeah, I was awful. <laughs> uh, 
so not to uh, rain on you guys, Four Guys Parade. Uh, <laughs> I've, only, I've only played it a few times, the PSN version. Mm. But um, I think this is one of those popular Battle Royale games that, that is not for me. Mm. Uh, I've played it a few times, and it has the thing where like, the presentation and appearance of it is the fun that uh, everyone seems to be having with it. But mm. from playing it myself, that there wasn't much of a uh, thing to make me think, like, oh, man, this is so good. I'm just going to buy this on Steam and blah. It's like, I just didn't have a good time with it because, like, it, it feels like... Uh, like mini games against randos, which it is, mm -hmm. but then I don't know, like the controls did my head in. Like, I almost wish it was like Gang Beasts uh, physics, where at least I could, I've got better control of my person. But stuff like, even stuff like the jump, stuff like that, I just was not having a good time of it. And I, I've watched like my brother like get crowns and stuff, and it's a weird thing because I can't see really like a a line of like um, uh, I don't know like acquisition of of skill. It feels like because um, at least when you're playing Mario Party, the whole point is that you're going to get screwed over. <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter how good you are at a particular <laughs> mini game because you're going to get screwed over. And if this one is just like weird, like this. There's one where uh, you walk on these like blocks, and if you walk on the wrong block, it falls like a Indiana Jones type thing. And hmm. that game only it only persists if someone goes and takes the risk, but no one's nobody's on each other's team. Uh, so you get like because you've got that throw mechanic, you get that awkward thing of people trying to throw people onto the blocks to make it work, and it, it all just feels like messy. You just get a bunch of people running up, and it's like I think it's a thing where maybe in six months when more stuff's been added and there's a bit more of, of, of like a balance to the flow of like the games that, that pop up that I might be interested to, to dabble mm -hmm. maybe in a sale and stuff. But yeah, currently it's like, I was hoping to get on the, the bandwagon. Cause I always, I always like trying the, these things out. I'm not a contrarian. I always like to have fun with the thing, but I was just surprised at how much I bounced off it. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. a bit surprising. I think it makes a difference being in it with a group of people and you're just sort of egging each other on and screaming at each other and stuff. Like, mm. I think I've tried to play it solo a few times and it's fine, but it's more of a, like, 10-minute distraction more than anything. I, I could never play it for, like, more than 20 minutes at a time. Oh, yeah, you know, I, couldn't, you know I, mean? I couldn't couldn't sit on it for, like, two hours or something because that yeah. would just wind me up. But <laughs> it was it's but fun. <laughs> it's also it's very different to those other kind of... I, I don't know if there's a genre term for it, but, like, those wobbly physics chaos games like um goat sim or uh not i guess not untitled goose games that's different that's very that's very driven game but like you know the ones where you just wobbly shit happens and then you can make a gif out of it and it's like silly fun and somebody screams on youtube at it and stuff like it's not it's not quite that yeah frivolous i feel like there's you know you have something to do and it doesn't and it does it quite simply and quite I mean, well like gary's like, mod <laughs> Even that's slightly different, though, I guess, because that's, yeah, you know, yeah. giving you a creative sandbox. But, like, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think I've think i just been in, enjoying something that's not too 
brain heavy. Like I found yeah. myself going into Bloodborne, playing that for like an hour, and then taking a 10 minute break in Fall Guys before going back to Bloodborne. And mm. that's been quite a nice cycle. Fall Guys is a good social game. That's, that's what I've found. Hmm. And although, like I said, it, it misses, it's missing that proper team dynamic. I'd like to be able to cooperate with my friends if I bring a party online. Hmm. But it's, um, it's nice that it's, um, I've been playing, I play Fall Guys and then I play Doom to decompress from Fall Guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I get frustrated when I lose at Fall Guys, because it's like Mario Party. It's, it, it, it presses that, that button, uh, for me anyway. But yeah, so I can't believe nobody's tried to make a game like Fall Guys before now, actually, like a virtual Takeshi's Castle type thing, because it's. It's not something that you you would think yeah, yeah, would be... Yeah. like It's a bit of a no-brainer, really, isn't it, for a video game concept? It is strange, because like, I was thinking about this, and I can't think of anything that's similar where it's like, you know, a lot of people in the same room doing silly yeah. shit together. But, I, yeah, I don't know. It feels like, as well, that tech of having these like super large numbers of people joining games seems to have only like properly matured in the last couple of years, maybe. So mm. that's that's possibly why there, uh, there's likely been smaller versions of this available in previous gens but i think like now we're in a space where you can like cram 60 100 150 people into one game a lot easier now and a lot of these a lot of these games are either like free to play or like on psn or something like that it removes the barrier of entry to get those high numbers so i think that's probably while we're seeing a lot more of those things now rather than a couple of years ago. Yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking of stuff like from the the 90s. Not, not that I want to go on a tangent, but stuff like Delta Force 2 where you could have... I'm sure you could have 60 people playing on, you know, like a 56k modem at the same time. But yeah, I, I do know what you mean. Like this this rise of the massive, the massive instances that you can play together. And like seeing stuff like PUBG go from... How many could you have in PUBG? Was it like 50 people or whatever? No, I think it was 100. That was 100? And then COD Warzone was 150. And like seeing this slow escalation is kind of cool. How many people could Unreal Tournament ha handle? I can't remember. I remember that that MAG game on, was it PS3 or something? That oh, could yeah. do like 250 or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And like Resistance Fall of Man, I remember playing that near the launch. Mm. And that, that had like teams of 50 apiece or something. Another game I was playing socially, so like with my colleagues, where I was playing the game and streaming it for them to participate in was the Batman, the uh, Batman, the Telltale series. And it's really good, shitty fun. Like, it's the worst Batman of all the Batmans. He's a terrible Batman. He's, he's basically Archer, but Batman Archer, where he's really ineffective, but also... It's not a comedy, but it somehow just happens to be a comedy by virtue of it all being like really poor choices and poor like dialogue options and stuff. Like it's super, super funny to play with a bunch of people because it has, um, I forgot what the option is called, but like a share play thing where they can connect in with their mobile phones. And um, I, initially I thought it was they could inform you of the choices that they want to do. So like, you know, you get a bunch of account of how many thumbs up for a particular option and then you get to decide to go with a popular vote or not. They just vote. <laughs> But yeah, they just vote on the option. So like you can have, there, there were five of us in a room like playing this game. And occasionally I was being overridden by my audience. And it's hilarious. Like, I don't know, just uh, everybody screaming at each other, like picking the shittiest, stupidest, 
Bruce Wayne option. And like our golden rule now is if you have the option to be either Bruce Wayne or Batman, always go Batman because every Bruce Wayne option is ridiculously dull in this series. And like I would actually I would actually really highly recommend Batman the Telltale series season one at the very least as a good game to play if you want to like sit in a room with your friends and chat and banter while doing something that's a little more passive so you don't have to be like engaged with the game all the time and you can talk over it and stuff um super funny super 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 stupid and it'll just i don't know it'll give you a laugh if you want to see the worst version of bruce wayne you've ever seen on screen <laughs> i bounced off batman telltale it's because you weren't playing it drunk with a bunch of mates that's what we yeah, need to do. maybe yeah, yeah. I, I think i think i was trying i was like trying too hard to get into the headspace of batman I mean, it's really hard to get into the headspace of, like, the 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 most explicit man-child version of Bruce Wayne you've ever seen. It's unbelievable yeah. how, how many poor choices he makes in this uh, in this story. It doesn't help that, like, the Telltale engine is notoriously kind of shoddy, and it's really struggling to keep up and, like, make these action moments feel very action-oriented. It's, um... Sometimes it's trying so hard that it becomes funny when it falls on its face, kind of. Um, yeah, yeah. Try try and approach it from a comedy angle instead of a serious angle, and you might have more fun with it. Yeah, I was I was like trying to be Batman, so I was in it like, okay, this is Batman sim. I get to make choices Batman makes. Yeah, so I was trying to be Batman with all my extensive knowledge of Batman, and I just kept doing the wrong thing. Like I broke a dude's arm, which is something Batman would do, but apparently that's too brutal. <laughs> so <laughs> I think what you need to do is every time you make a Batman choice, you have to say I'm Batman as you do yeah. it, and like yeah. everybody else in the group chat has to say I'm Batman. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Like you, th That's the only way to make it fun. Yeah, but you, you do the Batman thing, and the Batman <laughs> thing's always the wrong thing, but then, like... You, you but that's the thing. It's, it's always the wrong thing, and it's, it's so funny, because you can't do anything right in this game. Yeah, that's why I didn't like it. Yeah, that's why I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, <laughs> We're on I'll have to play it. this coin. I'll have to play... Oh, oh, a coin with two opposite sides. Mm -hmm, huh? mm -hmm. No, yeah, I'll have to... <laughs> I'll have to play it with you at some point. Um, and then uh, we'll we'll see then. So we'll 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 have like a drunken Discord and play it or something. I've got. I think I've got like the first two seasons of that. I've yeah, given them as a gift. But um, I've got so much to play. But I do want. I do want to get around to them because I have heard um, similar things about like the the jank and the sort of silliness of it all. Mm. Yeah. So someone keeps highlighting Scott Pilgrim and making it super bold on the episode run sheet. Little peek behind the curtain there. So who watched Scott Pilgrim? <laughs> uh, I did, but I haven't been on the sheet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was me trying to call attention to it, guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so who watched it? Which one of you two? Because I haven't watched it for years. Oh, you should. It's yeah. so good. I, I actually did rewatch it a few weeks ago and I watched the the table read where all of well some a handful of the actors from the film uh did a YouTube like Zoom version of the film. But Leon, you, you actually rewatched the, the movie that, recently. Yeah, I did. Um I rewatched it yesterday. Uh, I think last Thursday was the ten year anniversary of its release in mm -hmm. the United States. Um and I actually uh started to watch it uh two weeks ago and then i got interrupted and then i couldn't if, if i ever get interrupted in a thing like that i just can't 
get like half an hour into a movie and then like, oh, I've got to start again. So, um, so I left it and then until the anniversary. Um, and uh, watching it, it's interesting because um, so this is a movie I saw three times in the cinema. Um, so it's obviously a movie I really enjoyed. And it's one of those movies where when it came out on DVD, um, I, I think I used to have um, Scott Pilgrim, Inception, and The Social Network just looping. I just used to play them just <laughs> That's again. A, I'm again sorry, again. I, uh, it's basically the exact same trio. I'm sure I had a few others in that same rotation, but I, I did the same thing, rinse those three movies round and around. I don't know what it is about these 2010 movies, mm. but uh, and also I guess the life I was living back then, where it was like I was on I was on Skype and stuff like that every night uh, in mm. some sort of either a group chat or by like just like the messaging people element. But so I'd be on my computer for a long time, uh, so I would just not even be watching them at times. They would just be playing constantly. Um, and I think that uh, one of the reasons why that would have been the case is obviously they're all amazing movies. Uh, another reason why I think that's the case is because they're free movies that have like uh, excellent uh, score slash soundtracks. Yeah, I was going to uh, say all of them are very musical, not just yeah. in their soundtracks, but like in the pacing and the dialogue and everything. Yeah. And that's the, I think that's one of the super strengths of Scott Pilgrim in particular, because this is a movie where they released uh, a score and a soundtrack and it, it's uh, as a whole package it was, it was, it was quite great because you had had the movie um, you had the game which came out around a similar time which had its Anamanaguchi score and then you had the uh, score which was done by uh, Nigel Godrex who's like um, producer of like Radiohead and others um, and then on the sort of band fake bands in the movie that's done mostly by Beck writing all those uh, mm -hmm. songs and then different bands like Broken Social Scene, Standing In for Crashing Boys, stuff like that. Um, and then you've got like so, like the actual uh, soundtrack, which is uh, like the licensed music that they've included in the movie as well. All of that stuff is just like phenomenal. And it, like some of it is stuff that's referenced in the in the comics, the original comics, and um, some of it just like fits that world where it's just this like indie slash Britpop slash Canadian uh, indie like style, and it all meshes together to this this really cool package. And it's it's interesting going back because I think the last time I watched it was maybe five years ago or something like that. But um, hmm. it's it's a movie that has. I think it was ahead of its time, and it's also uh, just grown with me and become uh, more more beloved. Um, I think that it's um, probably like the pinnacle of like uh, Edgar Wright um, and his editors, his regular editors, like style. Uh, and I think he was like the perfect person for the job because all of his uh, like talents merge really well with the source material and it just becomes this um intertextual and transmedia just ball of just cool things come together um but yeah it's, it's funny like rewatching it now because 
like for the most part it all still works really well and it's all really fun t- uh, to watch and it's all doing like amazing stuff it's got like a, a, an amazing cast who uh, since that movie have all gone to do like really cool things um, and it just feels like a movie that I'm I'm surprised existed <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised they uh, like Universal made it like and mm-hmm. it came out mm. I have a lot of fondness for the comic and um, I remember the game very fondly as well. And uh, just to, a point to add to that, a tweet went out from Brian Lee O'Malley um, a couple of days ago. P.S. Ubisoft has reached out to me, so we might be getting a re-release of the game. Yeah, I've heard that because it's currently trapped on the PS3 and Xbox, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you yeah. can't even download them again. No. Like they, Delisted, it's, yeah. It's a PT scenario for that game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned i guess mm. so are we moving on to comics now onto our reviews section i'll allow it go ahead you'll allow it okay so <laughs> <laughs> we'll um we'll start with something that i picked that i recommended to you ray in particular mm. because i thought you would super dig it um this is a book called the red mother which is a boom Corics st- uh, boom studios comic um it's a creepy slow burn horror series with a focus on puzzles and art and it has this like strange unsettling atmosphere in the pages it's like prevalent and it has a lot in common with classic weird literature and cosmic horror so stories of strange cults and esoteric knowledge and the strangeness and madness that lives within puzzles, the idea of forbidden knowledge hidden inside a puzzle or maybe a puzzle granting access to a higher plane, like all this stuff that is absolutely fantastic and things that I love, you know, with my um, my my sort of like insatiable hunger for Lovecraftian literature and things like that. Like I love that kind of stuff. So like Cthulhu mythos type things like... Um, I guess for me, this has a lot in common with that kind of stuff, like the King in Yellow, um, Hastur of the Cthulhu mythos and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I will read the blurb for the comic first of all, and then we will dive right in. Jeremy Hound returns to his The Beauty roots as he teams with Danny Luckett, Hot Off Regression, for a new psychological horror series. After losing her eye and the man she loves in a brutal mugging, Daisy McDonough, is left to try and uh, left trying to put the pieces of her life back together. Just when she begins to think she can heal, move on, she begins to see strange things through her new prosthetic eye, and the Red Mother sees her in return. Yeah. So Ray, what, I mean, what what are your thoughts on this so far? So you initially sold it to me um, on the puzzle aspect. So yes, the fact yes. that it's it's kind. I mean, it it presents itself as being you know surrounded by the. Uh, the idea of these puzzle boxes, kind of like the, uh, what's the one from Hellraiser? Like the, um, the cube. The, um, the, the lament configuration. Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. But like, um, yeah, the idea of these like handcrafted puzzles that have some sort of mystery to them. And if this was like an Indiana Jones film, it would have some sort of mystic application or like there'd be some, something bigger, like more than the sum of its parts. And that's always like the fascination about these kind of puzzles which i really love i love these kind of physical objects that are a conundrum and are trying to trick you based on how they look from the outside like i spend a lot of time watching these youtube videos of people who 
uh, buy these really expensive, really meticulously crafted, like artisan uh, wooden puzzle boxes or like metal puzzle boxes, and they always have some sort of trick or configuration to them. And like that's initially what drew me to this. Um, and I think it actually does deliver on that. It's there's not as much of it going on as I thought. It's not a comic about puzzle boxes in the way that you expressed it to me. I mean, it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. It, the the yeah. the initial plot is kind of. In fact, the, the plot isn't even kicked off by it. Like, the plot happens, this, th- this sinister thing happens to our protagonist and she loses her partner. And it's more about the mystery of what actually happened to her and where is her partner, where is he disappeared to and all of that. But part of it is this um, this puzzle box aspect. And what I really like is that they actually do put some effort into like designing and crafting these things that make like tangible sense would make tangible sense if they were if they existed in real life um like i just thought that was a neat touch it doesn't necessarily add too much to the plot uh but the fact that they've got like 3d schematics of things and they've put some effort into like the mathematical or like the engineering construction of a thing i thought that was kind of cool but aside from that i think i'm i'm really really enjoying this story i think my biggest complaint so far is that which Leon hinted at earlier, where uh, surely the idea of being able to catch up on something that happened, you know, you know, a, a story that started a long time ago, and now you've got some stuff to to catch up on, so you're not waiting week to week, is super applicable in this sense because there are seven issues of the Red Mother so far, and I feel like I've only really read three, if you know what I mean, in terms of like density of story. I, I feel like it's it's a very very slow burn, as you say. Um, yeah, and. Yeah, I'm enjoying it, but mm. I kind of I hit seven, and I I really wish there was more, and that it wasn't dragging its feet quite so much, which is unfair because like part yeah. of what makes it really good is its tension and pacing and these this slow drip feed of reveals, and some of the reveals are really really good and like turn what you think is happening, which you've not been given very much information to like work with to begin with. You're sort of in the head of our protagonist uh, Daisy. Um, like being super confused about what the hell is going on in her life right now, um, and then so when these these twists and turns come, they come quite uh, 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 quite out of the blue. Um, mm. But I, I don't know. I just I maybe it's an old complaint, but like I w- I really wish I was picking this up three volumes in and I could like blast my way through them. Part of the um, the charm of it, I think, is the fact that it leaves you hungry for the next chapter. It really does. Like, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I love I, I, I think I think that it, it although it is a slow burn and if you're somebody that like prefers faster pacing, you're gonna you're gonna struggle to read it issue by issue. Um you, it'd be something you'd wanna wait for and binge, but I'm 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 okay with the slower pacing. I quite like it. I can I can identify that that will be an issue for some people, but for me it's not. Um and I just I like the way it leads you slowly down the staircase closer to the truth, like the slow descent, mm. like the jaws of the hunter have snapped shut when the tragedy occurs at the beginning of issue one. And ever since then, this like hulking razor tooth, many eyed beast has been slowly dragging me back to its den. And it's great. And the puzzles become more and more important as we go through the story. So, yeah, and not just in a like uh, a mystical sort of she uncovers more and more mysteries to unpick and like unbox. It's literally a part of her lifestyle. Like she's a a puzzle game designer, and it seems like she creates puzzles similar to like I forgot what it was called in the comic, but it's basically um, a 
a parody or an allusion to the Room video games by um, Fireproof Games, I believe, the which Realm. are basic. Yeah, it's called the Realm in the yeah. comic, and I'm, I'm talking which, about the mm. which is Jeremy Hounds or the comic. <laughs> so he's got a comic called The Realm that he he's an artist on, and oh, he's okay. yeah he, he like we've talked about it on this show. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, previously, I've talked about it, but yeah, I think that's I think that might be like a it, it, obviously it's a, a joke allusion to the game that you're talking about, but it's also a mm. nod to Jeremy Hounds or the work. Oh, that's really interesting. But yeah, yeah like the the Room games are essentially the kind of thing that we're talking the kind of puzzle boxes we're talking about in we were just talking about where like you you walk into a room and there's like a box to open up and figure out and stuff and part of the plot is her making like getting over her trauma and going back to this world going back to this job where she gets to design um these kind of puzzle boxes for a really wealthy artist who makes installations or like grand um yeah, grand installations which utilize these this kind of engineering and this kind of gamified logic and I, I, part of it is like you know that thing you talk about greg where you you really want to see the monster you want to understand the monster and normally i'm quite okay with not having the peek under the you know behind the curtain kind of thing yeah this one i really want to see where i want to see what the monsters are to begin with because there's there's some really cool character designs for the... Let me take a step back. So the, the way that the, the book is structured, it every single issue has is opened so far with like a, a, a red painted gaze into some other mystical like world where we see a skeleton slowly forming itself underneath an archway. I want to know what the hell's going on there. I want to see... I want to know what the monster is that's chasing her because there's some interesting plot turns that happen to that. There's also like this weird queen slash Thatcher looking demon i think who's tormenting her throughout the the story we've got so far i really want to know what the deal is behind like these people and the um the growing presence of like this cultish figure in the story mm. I, I like i'm really interested in that and then on top of that i want to know what this slow burn is about her getting drawn deeper and deeper into creating what might well be some sort of like mm cult driven huge puzzle box thing where they've tricked her into thinking it's an art installation but it might not be like that's just my it's my yeah ideas about where the plot is going but like i'm super super into it like it's mm. for me it's almost as if she's been chosen by the red mother for this for this uh so if you imagine like if you're looking at this i'm looking at this from a point of view of like other similar other stories i've read that kind of follow similar threads like uh, other things like things in the cthulhu mythos that kind of stuff um and like what's forming in my head now is that the 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 events that this is going to be a little bit spoilery actually so uh warning ahead but the events that have happened in issue one was her being chosen by this entity that appears at the beginning of each page which is the red mother this entity off in this other dimension somewhere that wants to get into our dimension and is using her to build the gateway yeah, it's interesting because it hasn't really given as much so far on on that aspect. Yeah. But like the 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 like the creeping sort of background horror where she's living in the real world, but you don't know who she can trust or like whether she can trust her own senses. Because part of the part of the plot is that she loses her eye, and um, she loses her eye in this attack, which happens to her and causes her partner to be lost and potentially dead or potentially missing or something. Um, and she keeps having these these visions. And one of the things I really liked about this was like you get this this red hued uh, wash over the frames. Um, and 
I, the way that I was, what I was expecting was the cliche of like, when you have this red haze vision, you would see the world in a different way, but she kind of doesn't. It's all that, all that she's really seeing is like the existence of this new entity. And the only, <laughs> the only thing that I spotted, which looked different between a regular panel and one of these red wash panels is she's holding a burger in one panel, which looks massive. And then her like red eye vision turns on and then the burger looks really tiny. And I don't know if that's like a consequence of like the mystical eye <laughs> thing that's going on, or maybe it's just a matter of perspective. But I thought I maybe... think that's a commentary on the fact that she was a New Yorker who now lives in London and things are a lot smaller <laughs> here than they are in New York. <laughs> maybe. No, the burger the burger's in New York still, man. The burger is in New York. Maybe she yeah. maybe like she thought she was ordering like a, a massive Big Mac, but it turned out it was a slider or something. Like I I, I was uh, I just I wanna know what like it's those kind of mysteries, which I know I'm making a joke about it, but I want to, they, they've not told us what the machinations are of, or like what the mechanisms are for a lot of this stuff. And normally I would find that really, um, it's a fine line between being frustrating and being just one of those things you accept in a holistic way, like not needing to have the monster revealed. But this one, there's just something really intriguing about how it's, it's all quite matter of fact. And we're just not seeing it. We we only have like her limited perspective. More, it's interesting. Like limited perspective, even more so because she only has one eye to look through now. I, I think there's something getting, very cool going on there. It's getting peeled back slowly. Mm. Very I, very slowly. And have you yeah. noticed how that? Have you noticed how the red mother only has one eye as well in the beginning yes. of yeah, the book? Yeah. 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 So, like, obviously, she's been chosen as the herald of the red mother or something like that. This is the way I'm looking at it in my head, and that's what she's going to do by she's going to design some intricate puzzle shrine thing that's going to bring the red mother to our world and all hell's going to break loose <laughs> hopefully um but yeah um and yeah so leon where are you in all this actually because you've read this as well haven't you i have um i agree with a lot of what you guys have said and probably find myself in the middle annoyingly where it's mm. like um like i enjoy the slow burn especially because i had seven issues to read as well um mm. and it, it's a weird thing because if it was just a book about this woman who survived an attack who makes puzzles and uh ends up uh taking a job in the uk that that and it was complete, and I heard it was really good. Like, that in itself could be a compelling thing. And then if it was just like, oh, this person caught up in this culty thing with supernatural things, that's also a cool thing. So it's like... Um, but then that what, that second thing kind of... Uh, changes your expectation to be like... Um, I like how long is it going to take until we uh, spend more than a few panels in the supernatural world? So it's yeah. like I I, ge I generally was fine with this with the slow burn, and it, I think what's common with stuff like this, I think uh, with my sensibilities, I know they're going to be the opposite to Greg's in this regard, where it's like I almost. No, not, no, I'm not going to say don't care because I do care because I think that stuff's cool and the designs are cool. But I'm almost less interested in whatever the Red Mother's plans are currently in terms of seeing the Red Mother and all that nonsense and and like uh, all that 
than I am with the weirdness with the stuff around uh, Daisy and like mm. the the sort of the Red Vision stuff like that. Those encounters are more interesting to me than like what the big possibly Cthulhu esque thing is going on. Um, but even th- I'm happy that's there and I'm uh, and I'm enjoying that part with it. But I'm almost like almost want to spend more time like I don't know like. Because it feels like at times, especially the further you go on, that just outside the panel, if she was to turn around, like people would be acting weird or something, you know, like mm. almost like a, some Rosemary's Baby type thing to some degree. And um, yeah, I, I, like I'm interested to see what happens with that and what happens with like the art installation stuff. Because yeah, it seems like something's going to get summoned, blah, 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 blah. But like, um, I'm I'm fine going for the day by day thing of that, but like I think that as you said before, Rahul, I this is a personal thing. I I would struggle to read this like once every month, mm-hmm. and and not because not from any quality reasons or anything, or not for me even saying oh I wish it did blah blah blah, just because like the rollout of the mystery and the information and stuff like that is so leisurely that I just like having month gaps between it would be I'll just like lose the momentum whereas like have reading them back to back uh recently uh you get a cool hook at the end and then I get to see wh- what's next and how that uh, uh, plays into the world so yeah it's kind of it's kind of a tricky one because I think a part of it uh plays to sensibilities a part of it plays to uh, expectations and I like I am having fun with all of this like uh, the interpersonal stuff I, I uh, it's in two cities that, that I'm quite fond of <laughs> um, and uh, just all the, the, the characters peppered around uh, like in in Daisy's orbit are quite interesting and you don't spend that much time with all these people but I feel like they uh, do a good job of bringing them to life and making them seem more than just uh, cardboard cutouts but it does feel like they all have like a life beyond the panels that we see them and, and, I, and I like that and I know there's more like twists and turns uh, to cut um, but yeah it's like I'm just cut, I'm still thinking with like the red mother. It's like just like get to it already. <laughs> I'm, I'm sick of seeing you standing there. Uh, like, what's your plan? Um, I'm I'm the opposite to that because I <laughs> I feel I feel compelled to carry on reading, to carry on digging deeper, and like just compelled to carry on with it and just see what happens. Like I'm a cultist, so yeah, actually, like, I I am. I'm compelled as well, and like I like you said, the point you made earlier is that it does um, it does leave you wanting more and uh, like wanting to go deeper into the into the thing. But like I think this is a thing where I want there's certain story types and there's some stuff that I prefer. I would have preferred it as a graphic novel mm. or like a multi-part graphic novel or something like that. Yeah. Uh, where it's like I get the equivalent of like twelve issues just to to read through, and then on volume two, if there is a volume two, we get deeper down the rabbit hole, blah blah blah. 
But like for a thing with like a mystery supernatural thing, uh, it like it's cool. But like part part of it can feel like uh, not episodic, but sort of like uh, now we need to have like a weird thing to do with her eye. And though this is like super reductive because it's like I don't really have any issues. Like I actually uh, I quite enjoy this yeah. book. I think that uh, the characters are cool. I think that the the look of it is uh, is really good. Uh, I feel like just the uh, like the the structure of it is good from like all the way at the beginning of the attack to to where to where we are now. Mm. Um, it's just that um, maybe it's whiplash because of read seven issues, and then now I'm going to have to wait until issue eight and <laughs> yeah, that's... into issue nine and so on and i'm not sure if i prepared yeah. for the whiplash of that um it, it's going to be some i mean like yeah it, it's going to be something where a lot of people are going to best enjoy this as a binge i mean like i can reading issue to issue I, I can have i i can deal with that it has its charm i'm i'm a cultist i'm fully hungry for the next issue every time and i can sit and i can wait for the next issue each month and it, it doesn't that doesn't it doesn't lose anything by being released like that for me but i know that when i get it all and i can read it all and binge it as like a whole graphic novel or something it will be enhanced beyond measure i'm sure mm. like it's going to be so much better when everything's clicked into place and i can binge it all through again but i'm i'm yeah. really enjoying it issue by issue so far like i i love like how it's so unsettling and creepy and the anxiety in the pages and the dread like really sticks to you afterwards like the book it has this like otherworldly unexplained dread that the character tries to shrug off as a symptom of her trauma, but we know it's something deeper. And like, she's like, okay, this is just a condition brought about by the loss of my eye. But like, yeah, uh, we know that's not true. And issue three by far is my favorite at the moment. Like has the best cover with the diagram of the heart puzzle, which is the thing that maybe mm. bounce it to you, Ray. Um, and the design of this heart puzzle is like completely fascinating to me. And it's something super cool and super strange. Um, like yeah, something I, at the edge of madness kind of thing. I actually have a very similar note saying issue number three. Yay. It's the issue about the puzzle box. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think this might also be one of my favorite issues of this, of this run so far. Like I, one thing which is also very puzzle boxy in both like literally puzzle boxes and also like, puzzle box stories, puzzle box TV and whatever, like it's very detail oriented. Like there's little things that, I, I don't know, the, the touches that you can never quite tell are significant or not, um, or even just like window dressing uh, to show that the the creative team are paying attention to like the, um, just the way the world works or like how to make things feel real. Like little things where like she's, um, She's about to inspect the, the wooden heart puzzle box and she lays everything out like really neatly on the floor. She's got her camera, her phone set up in front of her and like got her notebook and stuff. And like, I like the touch of her having moved her sofa off the rug and you can see like whole, like depressions from where the, um, the feet had like dug into the, the rug. And I just, that's exactly the kind of thing that I would do if I was going to be uh, like picking apart this kind of puzzle. I would make clear this space and have this whole thing. And I, I don't know, that there was a lot of stuff I enjoyed about that, apart from maybe the fact that she put a bottle of red wine on her rug next to her, which she then <laughs> proceeds to immediately spill. I bottle and the glass. Bottle and the glass, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she leaves the, like, the dip for her chips on the table. Like, just put it all on the floor if you're going to do that. But yeah, whatever. Like, the, the artwork and the character designs 
are are actually brilliant. I was going to bring this they up. Are. Like, there's, yeah. there's such like gorgeous lines and details in the facial expressions and the details in the environments in the book. Like you were just mentioning with the depressions on the rug. Mm. Um, like each panel, when we get to see an apartment or a city, it's wonderful. Like like the environments that we're in. Um, like the delightful puzzle solving sequences as well dotted throughout. Like mm. um, there's the one where she does the hexagonal Rubik's cube thing. And then um, uh, the, she does... The Megaminx, I believe. That's yeah. yeah. I don't know what it's called, but you would. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she does... Um, there's, a, there's a 12 panel grid in issue three where she's like solving the heart puzzle. Um, and then like the sequences with the Red Mother and the Red Mother's Herald, which is the black fuzzy thing with the white face and um yeah it's just everything about it's just just fantastic and awesome and draws you in and keeps you there and keeps you transfixed i think yeah one one thing about the character designs like particularly daisy is like the the artist whose name i've forgotten i apologize um is really good at facial expressions so Daisy, like, you really get the sense that Daisy is really, really trying hard to keep it together. And she has these moments of, like, feeling really lost or, like, really confused or obviously really affected by the trauma that she's experienced. But, like, holding it in and you get these moments where, like, her friend who's visiting uh, visiting her or her friend who used to live in New York, I assume, but has gone away to, to work and has come back and she's not quite ready to open up to this best friend of hers but they you know she drags her off to a restaurant and you get the this really interesting sequence where um i think this is also an issue three where um like she's a woman who's recently gone through this really traumatic experience but is now trying her best to just keep her life on track and so this idea of like getting dressed up to go to a restaurant with your friend because your friend wants needs you to do that for her because it's part of her job and like holding herself together and you get this moment where she um like she's in the bathroom wiping her tears because she's trying to keep it together for when she's in front of her friend and even they leave the restaurant and they're on their way to i get the feeling they were in the restaurant and they're on the way to a bar and there's a panel in the middle which is like she stares off to the left down to a like a red lit um alleyway which to me, I think is reminiscent of the moment earlier where she's left a restaurant with her partner and um, they look to the left and there's this empty hallway which she then gets dragged off into. And like these little touches which make you realize that there's a lot more on her mind than just the things happening that you can see. Um, mm. I think it's really good at like giving you those moments, like those moments of insight without her having to speak her mind out loud. I think that's really difficult to do in comics sometimes. Like. I don't know. There's there's a lot yeah. of touchstones there. Yeah, um, the artist uh, Danny Luckett. Um, mm. Yeah, I fully agree with the like expressions. There's, I think it's in issue two, where um, she's been avoiding her friend. Who in the first issue, the plan was to join join yeah. her, um, and there's she she comes over and she offers to get her a drink and. There's a panel uh, as her friend is looking towards us uh, in the background. Daisy's um, getting a glass and stuff, but for that panel, she's got she's like got her heads down, head down, and her arms on on the counter, and you can sort of feel her going like, "Okay, just, just uh, get it all together, get it all together, that try and have fun type thing." And it's like obviously there's no words 
uh, there at all. But I think stuff like that is um, it, it, it's the it's such a good um, partnership between uh, writer and artist to 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 nail that without being didactic in it anyway. And um, I'm very appreciative of the work that uh, Jeremy Horn and uh, Danny Luckett have done with that. Yeah, I'm impressed at how subtle it can be in places. Um, exactly like you said. Like, I think I've noted down a few other things which I liked, where, like, um, maybe not necessarily in the same vein, but there's a bit where she's sleeping and having a nightmare and she has a vision of her partner. And she, like, she falls out of bed. And the way that it's been drawn, it looks in it looks really painful. Like, she's desperately scrambling out of bed. Um and like as though she was awake and doing the actions she would be doing if she was stood upright like she was in her nightmare and like that that sense of dislocation like i don't normally see these kind of things sold so well like the the idea that she would be completely contorted as she gets out of bed and like slams to the floor to try and rush to the other corner of the room and stuff like i thought that was a really nice moment and like the idea that she um i think this is maybe issue five or six but she's sleeping in bed again another nightmare uh, scenario where She's in bed and you real or I realized that she's still sleeping on her own side of the bed and there's space for her partner there. And you see like a shadow of a mysterious figure, which you see at the foot of the bed afterwards. And like little things like that, which I feel have a lot of unspoken weight to them. Uh, and this this book is full of them, I think. It's, mm. it's really cool. Well, there are seven issues of this book currently available. And if you are looking for some really good deep horror to sink your teeth into, then look no further because it will end up sinking its teeth into you. Uh, and that is The Red Mother, um, written by Jeremy Hound. Art is by Danny Luckett. Letters, Ed Dukesha, and published by Boom Studios. So moving on from there, we will go on to the next one, which is something that I read, which is a book called Pulp. Now, if you remember... We, I talked about a preview of this book a couple episodes ago, episode 91. I now have the complete article, and it is a fantastic story. It's a story of a man at a time, a man who has seen so much violence and has roots in a completely different time to the one in which he is now living, even though they are mere decades apart. And it's like the juxtaposition between the Old West and where he's living now. Like how we talked about this last time, like how jarring it must have been to live through such rapid change. And, and and in this book, we can see the effect of it. We can see how this former outlaw is, is struggling to find his place in the world and to find a way out, as he calls it, from the cycle of violence and suffering in his life. Um, so if I read you the blurb from the back of the hardback that I've got here in front of me. What do you do when you're expected to die young but somehow didn't? Max Winter used to have a different name and a different life. A long time ago, now in 1930s New York, Max survives by writing thinly disguised tales of the man he used to be. For the pulp magazines, tales of the forgotten frontier and a Wild West outlaw dispensing justice with a six-gun. But as his life begins to crumble and he watches the world move to the brink of war, with Nazis marching across Europe and in the streets of New York City, Max finds himself thinking like an outlaw again. And once he starts down that path, there may be no way back. So yeah, it's um, kind of like he's he's uh, a former robber who was hunted through the Old West, and he's now an old man selling stories of his past for publishing in a pulp magazine. Um, and he's kind of just barely scraping by doing that. Um, 
it's almost a redemption story in a way. Uh, the Nazis are on the rise and our main character, Max, has been pulled back in to fight for justice the only way that he knows how and uh, doing the only thing that comes natural to him. Um, it begins when he sees a Jewish person being attacked in a subway station and he steps in to try and defend him and he gets beaten himself and robbed. Um, almost gets pulled back into the cycle through desperation. So he's been, you know, it, it, he's he's feeling like he's only just scraping by and he needs more money and he sees an opportunity and he almost gets pulled back in through the desperation uh, because he would, you know, he's planning, a he then starts planning a heist or a holdup um, in like a very old West style way that probably wouldn't work in 1920s New York. And it's a good thing he doesn't go through with it anyway. Um, so we talked, as we talked about before, um, the art and the colors are absolutely gorgeous here. And, uh, there's this beautiful textured color wash over figures and structures composed of deep shadow and thick, dark outlines, almost as if they're carved out of wood print. And this is like for the memory, uh, sections. Um, and it captures the Pulp Fiction aesthetic and the haziness of Max's stories and memories of life in the old West. And then, uh, when we're taken back to the present day, it's like a less textured palette, but with more movement in the figures and the images look less static and it's a very effective way to divide memories from reality in the narrative. And it looks absolutely fantastic. Um, I want to talk about the awesome lettering effect that they use here as well. There's this really cool lettering effect where they blur and defocus words just enough to give the effect of a blackout or a loss of consciousness um, because we have a character, Max, um, suffering from heart trouble at points in the book. And um, he's listening and what he's listening to other people say begins to fade out and fuzz on the page. And gets blurry because obviously he's on the edge of blacking out and he's suffering intense pain or and heart attacks coming on or something like that. And the speech fades out, which is really cool. Um, and it's a really effective way to get like the narrowing of vision and the pain and everything else and the increased blood pressure, like to get that feeling across through the page of the comic. I think that's a really cool device. Um, and yeah, I just, I just really enjoyed the story and enjoyed the way it ended and, um, this kind of like typical pulp tropes of fighting Nazis in America um, on the edge of World War Two, and the way that they've taken that and played with it. Um, I I was really into that. And uh, I think this is a really great, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite short, actually. It's not the longest uh, graphic novel in the world. Um, it's quite short. It's, Really good, though. Really, really good for what it is. And I, I do recommend you pick it up. And that is uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips um, with colours by Jacob Phillips. So Sean Phillips would be the artist on this. Um, and I fully recommend that you check that out. And I think you did start to check it out, didn't you, Leon? Yeah, yeah. Then I got interrupted with life stuff and had to put it aside. But I'll hopefully have it read for the next episode because uh, I'm yeah. super interested in giving it a go. Yeah, I'd, this... I'd love to hear you see this is the one that we read as a preview with um, that Texas Blood. Is that right? It is indeed. Okay, cool. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I don't have much to say. I didn't read it, but the art looks great. Yeah, no, it's it's a really cool story. Um, and like I said, it's a it's a good little story. It's a relatively short graphic novel, but it's um, it's very good for what it is, and it's very enjoyable. Um, so Ray, you yeah. read something. <laughs> I caught up on Finger Guns issues number three and four. Um, so Finger Guns number one and two is something that me and Leon talked about in a previous cast, I can't remember which one. 
Um, it's a Vault comic uh, written by Justin Richards, art by Val Halverson, uh, colours by Rebecca Nolte, and letters by Taylor Esposito. Um, I think uh, we both gushed about it, I believe. I certainly loved issues number one and two. Um, sorry, let me just find my notes. Apologies. Um, so yeah, we we basically left Finger Guns 2 on a cliffhanger revelation, um, and it, it, it's this story about two teenagers, uh, Sadie and Wes, and they discover that they, they have powers using their finger guns. They can point at people and influence them to do certain things depending on the arrangement of their fingers on their hand and stuff. And it's, um, it's essentially a story about uh, their friendship, uh, their, you know, discovering each other despite not running in the same circles. Um, and the powers seem to be a vehicle to explore the problems that these kids are facing, you know, these, these teenage issues that they have to deal with. Um, Sadie, we've found so far, is that uh, she has an abusive father, and Wes is essentially lonely and neglected um, in a single-parent household um, whose, you know, the, the father isn't around very much. Um, so far, their friendship's been growing, and they've been experimenting with their finger-pointing powers, um, and, yeah, just having lots of fun with it. And as we get into issues three and four, we find that... So in, in Wes, Sadie has found someone that she connects to in a way that she can't connect to with anyone else because they have this, you know, this shared connection um, and this shared mystery that they can't talk to anyone else about. And it's uh, she's beginning to neglect her friends to spend time with him, and she has to make these, like, lame, obviously false excuses to ditch them. And so they go to Wes's house and discover a new emotion that they can fire upon people. So before they had anger and calmness and now they've discovered they can influence bravery in people and then based on that this comic gets to do what it's what it's been doing best so far it trades in serious family drama for some really touching and fun moments of like looseness and dedicates these huge and successive panels to our protagonists just enjoying the hell out of something and it's really cool and joyful and fun and vibrant and then in an all too real way Sadie has to leave the comfort of her friends, this uh, her new friend Wes, to go home and face the problems that a teenager should never have to face. And then, quite rapidly, the tone darkens. This is in issue three, by the way. The tone darkens, but the comic finds a way to express this darkness while maintaining its vibrant palette, which is really interesting and really smart and hard to do, and like is almost qu is quite unsettling. So like. The way it does it without literally going dark and um, like depressing, I guess, is <sighs> depressing is not the right way. It doesn't. It doesn't delve into. It doesn't go like gothic dark. Basically, like the framing changes and Sadie becomes this confident giant against imposing silhouettes shrouded in like bold red colors, and then the construction changes so that smaller fraught moments tumble down the page frantically, and then what follows in this sequence is a cacophony of like anger, um, all expressed through the use of colour and a haze of rage that spills from fists and seeps between panels, and onomatopoeia that slams and breaks through gutters, and the way that yelled words grow and become bloodied, and the distraught glances given between characters that we've come to care for, and it's all really effective. All of the aspects of comic art that, I, that I've, you know, been learning to understand over the years are utilised to maximum effect in this sequence, and all of the creatives are working in concert to create a really agonizing set piece. And it was super affecting, pulse quickening, and ultimately really heartbreaking. 
And then all the more so when juxtaposed with the lovely moments that we see that Wes gets to have shortly after, because um, he gets to have this lovely moment with his father, which is born of the fun warmth that Sadie helped create for him in his house before she left. And like, I don't know, I just thought it was really touching and went in a place that I really didn't expect. And then all of that's in issue three and in issue four, so much happens and I really don't want to spoil anything. And, um, I am denied about giving a trigger warning because I feel like the trigger warning in itself might be a bit of a mild spoiler, but I think it's it bears saying because it, issue four suddenly becomes very heavy, more than I was expecting. So the trigger warnings would be for domestic violence and even some outright gore, which I really didn't see coming. And um, I'll leave it there. I think it's a really worthwhile story so far. R really beautiful art, really beautiful writing. Uh, some really fun moments which in isolation would just be great as it is just you know two kids learning to understand their powers but then it it uses that as a framework for something more real and more dangerous and more true to life and uh yeah i just think th the story has a lot of value and i'm looking forward to seeing where it goes um so that's Finger Guns issues number three and four. Uh, it is the last comic on the list now that I have to talk about, which is something that I dived into and started reading because this is something that a lot of people have been telling me that I should read. Um, like I've had a lot of recommendations for this, like, oh, you should try Mortal Hulk, like from a lot of different places and things like that. Um, because people know that I like horror comics. Uh, and like I've seen like a lot of articles kind of like saying that this is a great run of comics. So here's me checking out the Immortal Hulk, finally. So uh, I went and bought the um, Omnibus, which is actually just part one of the Omnibus. It's the first 15 issues. So it collects um, Avengers 684 and then 15 issues of the Immortal Hulk. Um, and this is a, a fairly recent run as well. This is like uh, 2018, 2019, still ongoing now kind of thing. So it's like the, the previous two years. Um, so when the Hulk first appeared on newsstands in May 1962, it was less of a superhero book and had more of a prominent horror monster element. Uh, I guess you could say it had more in common with um, like, obviously these are late. this is a later book, but things like Swamp Thing. Uh, Jack Kirby conceived the Hulk inspired by monster movies similar to, and he conceived the Hulk as a character similar to the werewolf in fact, where he would transform at night. And, uh, originally actually, if you go back and look at the first issue of the Hulk, the Hulk was gray. Um, but then after that, from then onwards, he was green. So, uh, the immortal Hulk is an ongoing run that taps into the original mood and concept of, um, the fact that the Hulk is a monster. So it goes back to the roots and we're getting this, uh, this monster story instead of, um, how sometimes with Hulk tales, it goes more in a kind of maybe superhero direction. Uh, this, this sits firmly in the, in Monsterland, and, um, it, uh, it has a lot in common for me with, with things like Swamp Thing and, and that kind of, that kind of comics, comic book story, that kind of, that kind of, uh, comic book character. Um, so it, it, Banner can die, but the Hulk cannot is pretty much the main thing to take away from this. Um, 
It picks up with Avengers 684, which covers the Hulk's return following the events in Marvel Civil War 2, where Banner has asked Hawkeye to kill him using a gamma-radiated vibranium arrowhead. Um, the Hulk is then brought back in the Secret Empire uh, thing that happened with Marvel. That's the one where Cap's a Hydra agent and a Nazi. So Cap brings him back temporarily as an agent of Hydra, and then he dies again, and then he comes back as part of the Avengers No Surrender storyline. We don't really need to know all of that to enjoy the Immortal Hulk. Um, this is just stuff that came before that explains the whole dying and coming back to life thing. Um, the art is great, and this is just quality Marvel comics. Like I like reading the Hulk as a horror book. I like experiencing the monster, and this is what I feel the character was made for. So stories like this that involve the Hulk are always like my favorite Hulk stories, I guess. And this this is is uh, is is really good comics, and I do recommend you check out the Immortal Hulk if you if you want a horror comic. Um, this is a good place to start. Um, it's it's very good horror comics, and uh, yeah, you don't really need to get too bogged down into past events and things to understand what's going on here. So, like the, the whole premise is the fact that um, the Hulk. Uh, is it, the Hulk cannot die, but like, whereas you would, you could shoot Banner in the head and Banner would die, but then he would come back as the big green Hulk. Like that would just turn him into the Hulk. Killing Banner would just bring the Hulk out. So that's the whole premise in it here. Like the, it, it opens actually the first issue of the Immortal Hulk run opens where Banner is caught in a gas station holdup and is shot dead. And then later comes back as the Hulk to exact some kind of like brutal vengeance on um the poor <laughs> uh the the guy who's i mean like he's a bad person we know this guy's a bad person he's he's robbed the gas station to pay back a loan that he probably should never have taken uh killed some people in the process out of panic but yeah he comes back and exacts vengeance on this guy um and it's like this whole the whole thing seems to be like he's just this cruel beast and it actually shows you that side of the Hulk, this this cruel, snarling beast that the Hulk is. Um, and it, it really taps into that and it really gets that across. And that's what I what I really, really enjoy about it and what I really enjoy seeing. He, he dispenses like the justice as he sees fit kind of thing, like cruel, violent and unforgiving. This huge, snarling green beast stalking in the shadows at night because as Banner repeats, kind of like a mantra almost throughout the night night time is the Hulk's time kind of thing. So again, tapping into that energy that um, the original Hulk comics in the 60s started out with, which uh, I'm really down with. So yeah, that is uh, Marvel's Immortal Hulk. And that is uh, an extensive um, creative team. There's a lot of names attached to this because there's a lot of different people worked on it. Um, but your main team is uh, Al Ewing, uh, writing duties. Your penciler is Joe Bennett. Uh, Inca is uh, Roy Jose. Uh, colorist, uh, Paul Mounts. And letterer, Corey Petit. Uh, so yeah, that is uh, The Immortal Hulk. And I think that brings us to an end um, for today's show. Um, and uh, into the pull list we go. So... Like I mentioned up top at the beginning of the episode, with all this COVID business, I've ended up late to the party on a lot of things. And there's this whole Marvel Empire event going on 
which like I've mentioned with this whole Dark Knight's death metal thing that's going on, it's something I'll be buying collected. It's a weird old time. And yeah, I'm just, um, so there's a, but there is a few things to look forward to still, a few things that I've got on my list here. And these are all from August 25th. So we've got uh, Batman Three Jokers to kick us off. This one is uh, another, it's a DC Black Label thing. And it explores um, the idea that Jeff Johns and Jason Fabok started a while back. Um, so 30 years after Batman, the killing joke changed comics forever. Three Jokers re-examines the myth of who or what the Joker is and what is at the heart of his eternal battle with Batman. New York Times best-selling writer Jeff Johns and Jason Fabok, the writer-artist team that waged the dark side war in the pages of Justice League, reunite to tell the ultimate story of Batman and the Joker years after. Uh, after years of anticipation, sorry, starting in DC Universe Rebirth 1, the epic miniseries you've been waiting for is here. Find out why there are three Jokers and what that means for the Dark Knight and the Clown Prince of Crime. It's a mystery unlike any that Batman has ever faced. So yeah, there's been this whole thing kicking around that actually there are three Jokers. And this is to do with uh, Batman gaining knowledge by sitting in a chair, which... I haven't got the resources in front of me or mentally to go into this right now, <laughs> but Batman became a god for a short time and uh, he learned that there was three Jokers. Of course um, he did. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there we go. Um, we've got Fantastic Four Antithesis, um, which um, am I saying that right, Ray? Antithesis, or would you say antithesis? Antithesis, antithesis I, think it is, isn't it? I, I believe. Yeah. yeah, antithesis, yeah. I don't know, I'm Um So, <laughs> Fantastic Four Antithesis, number one. Uh, it's the first full-length Fantastic Four story ever illustrated by classic creator Neil Adams. It's an, unstopp an unstoppable meter of unknown origin has erupted from hyperspace, and unless the Fantastic Four can find a way to stop it hitting Manhattan, millions will die. So I'm uh, interested in this, because it's like a kind of like a standalone Fantastic Four story that I'm, I'm down with. Uh, and then the last one is uh, Lock and Key uh, in Pale Battalions Go, which we discussed last episode. Our, um, we discussed our hunger for that last time. So uh, the impossible reality bending keys of Key House have always been weapons of war. In the spring of 1915, Chamberlain Locke's oldest son, John, is desperate to be a part of the greatest war of all. And never mind that he's too young to enlist. He means to use the power of the keys to turn the tide and will uh, will tell any lie and try any manipulation to have his way. Prepare to open a door onto one of the grimmest battlefields of the 20th century, whose darkness might even strike fear into an army of supernatural shadows. So we've got a lock and key tale set during World War One, which is uh, rather interesting. Uh, yeah, this is another one of those um, golden age lock and key stories that sort of like fits in with all those other one shots we've been getting recently which is kind of cool so that brings us to a close that is ace comicals episode number 94 you can find us at www.acecomicals.com which is the hub for everything we do um there are multiple places to listen to us uh, you can listen to us on spotify tuning castro uh itunes um you can find us on twitter under at ace comicals you can at us, DM us, get involved in the conversation, recommend us books. Uh, if you have opinions about the things that we've read, let us know what you thought, if you've picked them up and read them as well. Um, 
you can email us at acecomicals.gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter under at Bato. That's B-A-T-T-O-U. Ray, where can we find you? On Twitter at Monke. That's M-O-O-N-K-E-H. And Leon, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Leon Evra. And I just want to add, screw grading algorithms that worsen class divides. Hell yeah, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. What is all that about, man? Like, It's dystopian. So, it is. <laughs> dystopian classism. It really is. Um, and uh, they need to revise that shit and quick. So yeah, that is uh, Ace Comicals number 94. Ace Comicals over and out.